Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by not Zach Davis this week. Hi, Ashley McKinless. Sebastian <laughs> Gomes here. I'm usually the producer of your show uh, in the background, but here I am filling in pinch hitting for Zach Davis this week. Yes, so glad to have you here. So, Sebastian, you know his name from the credits, but he's not just our producer. He is the executive editor for audio and video at American Media, and he does great work. It's great to have you here. Thanks. It's good to be with you. Yeah, this is the moment where, you know, when you're listening to your favorite podcast, you've been waiting all week, and then you're like, oh my gosh, the host is not there. Shut it down. Shut it down. (laughs) No, I'm hoping that doesn't happen. And I hope no one feels that way about Zach. And I hope I'm just um, young, hip, and lay enough to participate in this. Oh yeah, we're we're both we're both in our thirties. <laughs> I sometimes say I'm now like too old to attend a World Youth Day because I'm over thirty-five, which is the official cutoff of youth in the church. But I oh, also feel like I'm too young to really fit in at a world meeting of families. So I'm in this like Catholic limbo. <laughs> but maybe Jesuitical well, is the place, the land that, of misfit toys. You belong here. Thank you. <laughs> And this week, we are having a drink in honor of Pope Francis, who uh, is struggling with some knee pain. That's right. If you've been uh, listening to the show or our other podcasts inside the Vatican, we've been talking a lot about the Pope's health. Uh, you might have seen him in pictures or during his general audience uh, being rolled around in, in, in a wheelchair or in the Pope mobile because he's having a lot of difficulty with in one of his knees. He has a strained ligament in one of his knees. He's getting a lot of therapy. Um, and in a kind of a funny moment in this week's general audience, he was riding around the square, encountered a group of, I think they were Mexican uh, seminarians in the crowd, and they were kind of joking back and forth. And he said, look, the real therapy I need is a shot of tequila. <laughs> so that's what we're drinking this week. Yes. In solidarity with Pope Francis. Usually I would mix this and make it a margarita or something, but. Yeah. He just had a shot. So cheers. <laughs> cheers. And who are you talking to this week, Ashley? So Zach and I, a couple weeks back, spoke with Dr. Josh Packard, the executive director of Springtide Research Institute, which is a group that focuses on uh, the faith lives of young people. Uh, we, we talked to him a, about a year ago about a report on the state of religion and young people. And now we're revisiting uh, his research because he has a new report uh, called Navigating Uncertainty. Catholic edition. And it, it it looks at what Catholics who are, you know, of the Gen Z generation, how they're dealing with the uncertainty of the COVID-19 pandemic and how that's affecting their relationship to the church. Yeah, I was fascinated to hear this conversation that you had with uh, Dr. Packard, especially that like 
he's found that a lot of young people are suspicious of leaders who are connected to institutions. And I think rightly so, right? I think a lot of young people will look at people connected to institutions and, and say, like, do you really have the best interest of us at heart? Or are you really concerned with the institution? And that's a critical question, I think, in this whole discussion. And you guys have a wonderful conversation with him about that. So if you're a young person who wants to feel like you're being heard by the institutional church, or if you're an older person who's trying to keep the young people in your lives uh, connected to the church, this is a great conversation for you. So stick around. But first, we have a few words about our sponsor this week. So last week, I was down in the southern part of Louisiana, right on the Gulf Coast, a little town called Grand Isle. And we stopped to go to the local church. It's a very Catholic area. We stopped by the local church just to check it out. And they have this incredible bell. It's a very historic bell. And sure enough, when you have something that's very historic, you have like a plaque next to it or some kind of card that's explaining the history of the bell. And I'm reading it. And the first priest, I think it was like in the 1880s, who helped build the church, was collecting you know, resources. And the bell was fashioned out of 700 pounds of gold and silver, partly from his own family crest. <laughs> partly from heirlooms that all the parishioners had like donated for the church. And guess what? With pirate booty. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so I immediately was thinking, oh my gosh, this church was built with pirate booty. But what does that actually mean? And so I did what you and Zach often talk about each week, which is go to Wondrium. And I found a course there called The Real History of Pirates. It's part of the Great Courses Collection. And it was an incredible survey of the history of pirates and debunking some of the myths around pirates that we're all fascinated by. Yes. And this is why we love Wondrium. Whatever you want to go down a rabbit hole on, they have a course or video or audio program for you. And they come from trusted experts. So you know what you're getting is not myths, but the real story of pirates and many other topics from philosophy to cooking to health and wellness. That's right. And that's why we want you to sign up for Wondrium today. Wondrium is offering Jesuitical listeners a free trial plus 20% off the annual plan. And to get it, all you need to do is go to this special URL, wondrium.com slash Jesuitical. Again, that's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash Jesuitical and sign up today. And now we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. Uh, and this week's story actually comes from a couple weeks ago. But on May 4th, the U.S. Bishops Conference announced that they would be ceasing the domestic operations of Catholic News Service at the end of 2022. Their, their Rome Bureau will stay open and its content will be made free starting in 2023. But 21 people at the New York and Washington, D.C. offices of Catholic News Service are going to be laid off at the end of this year. And this is a, a really big story for the Catholic Church. Even even if you didn't had never heard of Catholic News Service, if you're listening to this show, your your knowledge of the Catholic News has been deeply informed by the reporting that CNS does uh, every day for the church. Yeah, that's right. I'm glad you mentioned that, Ashley, because this is obviously a news story that affects us, you and I and our colleagues personally, because we're in the journalism business and the news business and the commentary business. Uh, but this really does uh, affect Catholics across the country and, and across the world. And for those who don't know, what is Catholic News Service? It's a hundred-year-old news wing of the U.S. church. It's a journalistic enterprise with editorial independence from the church. That's really important because that's how real journalism is done. 
Yeah, and we have seen in recent decades how important it is to have objective, independent journalists covering subjects of the church, even when it's not going to be flattering to Catholics or the U.S. bishops. That's right. And the closure is obviously part of uh, a clear trend across the, the media landscape or news landscape, I should say. I mean, we've seen longstanding newspapers, both secular and Catholic, shutting down due to financial concerns, which was the main issue that we were explained was why CNS bureaus are going to be shut down. CNS used to be self-sustained by subscriptions. That's no longer the case. Right. So they used to provide their their wire stories to diocesan newspapers all across the country and to publications like America Magazine. And as you mentioned, a lot of those papers are are shutting down or cutting back. And so CNS's model did not it was not sustainable. And then at um, a recent bishops meeting, they kind of restructured their entire communications operation. And that included the closure of CNS. So here today, we wanted to talk a little bit about what's what's being lost, both in the Catholic media world and for the larger church in the United States. So our colleagues, Michael Lachlan and Colleen Deli spoke with Catholic editors and journalists across the country in the wake of this news to see what it means for them. And basically what they heard back was that these local diocesan papers do not have the resources, the, the staff, the money to cover national news. And so when a story comes out like the recent uh, leak of the Supreme Court draft. Uh, local local Catholic papers are not going to have the resources to, to cover that news from a Catholic perspective for their parishioners. And that was the bread and butter of a, of a place like CNS. Um, and, and these papers are also wary of having to rely on, on secular wire services like the Associated Press, which does great reporting, but it's not doing comprehensive reporting of the Catholic Church. It, it's going to get the most like hot button issues in its, in its coverage, but not things that are of real importance to Catholics across the country. You said something really important there, Ashley, which is um, that CNS provided coverage of the church that local Catholics, people in any parish, in any diocese, through their local paper, through their local diocesan channels, through their parish channels, could have access to. And so without them around, where are ordinary Catholics going to get their news? You know, you and I spend a lot of our time just scouring Twitter and reading all these different publications to try to wrap our heads around very controversial and and difficult topics in the church. Uh, where are people who don't have the time to do that or don't do that for a living going to go now? That's a really big question I have. And I've I spent a lot of time talking to people at that level, at the parish level, and oftentimes they'll they'll bring up a topic or a story or mention something, and I'm like, where are you reading that? Where are you getting that from? You know. And CNS, Catholic News Service, was always, always, always a place where I could point people to and say, if you really want to just know what happened, what is the story here? CNS is the place to go. And we don't have that anymore. And that was another thing that Mike and Colleen picked up on in their reporting um, among Catholic media professionals is that they are worried about losing that objective source. And they, they point to the alternative, which is it's another wire service called Catholic News Agency. It's affiliated with EWTN, the largest Catholic television network in the world. And they make their articles available for free. So if you're a local diocesan paper, it could be very tempting to draw on Catholic News Agency, which I, I will say they do some solid reporting, but I I just, they are not at the level of professionalism as CNS. And I think it's fair to say that their their coverage does have a more ideological bent. EWTN has been uh, criticized uh, by some Catholics for, for their 
you know, willingness to feature very harsh critics of Pope Francis on their on their television programs. Um, and it even got to the point where it seemed that Pope Francis, uh, in commenting on uh, media attacks on his papacy, referred to EWTN's uh, attacks on him as the work of the devil. So if if that is what's filling the void created by the closure of CNS, that 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 doesn't just affect journalists like you and me. That is going to shape the direction of the conversation around faith and culture and politics in the United States in a real way. That's right. And and even though this is, a, you know, in, in a sort of abstract sense, the bishops making this decision, there is some disagreement among the bishops themselves about uh, this decision, right? In Mike's report, he was able to speak to Bishop Christopher Coyne of Burlington, Vermont, um, who said his diocese will not be making that switch from Catholic News Service to Catholic News Agency, who you were just talking about. And he said, quote, in Burlington, we don't want anything to do with CNA, Catholic News Agency, because of its affiliation with EWTN and the anti-Francis rhetoric on the network. So you can see that this decision itself is controversial and not a kind well, of... Controversial and and at this point kind of... There, it's a decision without without a lot of transparency around it. So so people who relied on CNS are kind of left in this unwelcome position of wondering where they are going to go from here. But I'm wondering, yeah. So with all that all that context, I'm wondering what are what are your big takeaways from from this uh, turn of events? Yeah, I think for me, when I look across the the Catholic media landscape, I see all the trends that we just laid out. And I really felt that Catholic News Service was a bedrock of solid professional Catholic discourse. It was it was a place where we could all kind of put our roots down and then start talking in a creative and, and critical way about issues together. And so I'm really concerned about like how this void is going to be filled, as you mentioned. Um, but even beyond that, I think there's there's a sense of a, of an evangelical loss here. And what I mean by that is that without Catholic News Service doing the work that they were doing, secular press and secular people who are not familiar with the Catholic Church, who are looking for information about the Catholic Church or trying to understand what's happening in the Catholic Church, don't have that outlet to turn to. So where are they going to get their news from? If, if you as an ordinary Catholic feel maybe a little bit out to sea uh, in, in the Catholic landscape today because of all the different, you know, opinions that are circulating. Imagine someone who doesn't have a, a basic catechetical understanding of the church and its structures and that type of thing, right? So this is this is just a tremendous loss in my opinion. I don't know where it's going to go, but I see it's not only a tremendous loss for the church, but also for the society. Yeah. And listeners might be wondering, why can't America fill in the void there? And, you know, we do do reporting, really uh, reporting that I'm very proud of, but we are fundamentally a journal of opinion. Our, our job is to to read the news, the events that are happening in the world, and give opinion on it, which has its place in anyone's media diet. But we we can't we can't have informed opinions if we don't have the objective news source first. Which is leads me to my kind of what I've been thinking about in the wake of this news is that it's easy to you know bemoan the bishop's decision, but the decision was a financial one, and the reason that they had to make that is there's less of a demand for this kind of news now. Uh, I, I see this in my own, you know, my own reading is that it's it's much more fun to read an opinion piece or a hot take that that you agree with than it is to read a, a well-researched and reported news story. And so I think 
part of this, and this is the same for the Catholic press and and for the secular press, is we need to we need to figure out <laughs> how to to kind of revitalize the interest in news reporting and less less of an emphasis on the hot takes and opinion and inflammatory rhetoric. And this week we have another another example of a time when I personally turned to Catholic News Service and in the wake of the horrific shooting in Buffalo that uh, was carried out by a, a racist 18-year-old who targeted a, a black community and killed 10 people. Um, and so CNS has has a, a roundup of the reactions from bishops, which some of them were, were, were quite strong in calling out um, the, the sins of white supremacy and racism and, and calling for uh, stricter gun controls. So I would just, we'll, we'll, we'll link to that in the show notes, but just wanted to raise that so listeners could see what the church is saying in response to this. And we, of course, uh, had our horror and condemnation and prayers uh, to that of the the Catholic bishops and other leaders in the church. And now stick around for Ashley and Zach's conversation with Dr. Josh Packard, Executive Director of Springtide Research Institute. Joining us from Greeley, Colorado, is Dr. Josh Packard. Josh is the Executive Director of Springtide Research Institute. Welcome back to Jesuitical, Josh. Uh, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. No, thanks for joining us. Um, Really excited to dig into this uh, new study that you guys have put out. So we should say the title one more time. It's State of Religion and Young People 2021, Navigating Uncertainty. And we're looking at the Catholic addiction, but I think we're going to be talking about, you know, trends that are occur across uh, the religious landscape. But I want to dig into like what this term uncertainty really means, because uh, Ashley and I were talking about this beforehand. So, like, isn't uncertainty just part of being a, a young person in general? Um, and it like, hasn't this always been true? And so what, what, what does it mean in the context of this report? And what does it mean particularly for this generation? Yeah, 100%. I mean, that is, in fact, that's part of the reason why we felt like it was an important topic to take up, because while the uncertainty that hasn't changed. I mean, as you mentioned, like that's just, you know, it's like that and rock and roll and hating everything your parents do is just right. a part of being a teenager, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, the, what has changed though, is the world around that uncertainty. So it's the, you know, where, where young people used to be, I think pretty embedded in these, in these institutions that would provide for better or worse, like automatic guidance, you know, whether you wanted it or not, there were people there telling you what to do about uncertain times. Who did, who did those people have been like? Yeah, so like teachers that you trusted. Uh, a lot of times you'd be connected, obviously, to religious institutions with, with pastors and priests and other leaders that, that would be giving you moral uh, guidance um, and on and on. And sometimes those connections still exist, but what's changed, like we don't we just don't trust them to do that anymore. So like when, when people stray out of their lanes, uh, like when teachers do more than teach, we get really upset about that. Um, what, you know, so often now young people are not connected to religious institutions at all, et cetera. So... What's different is that, like the uncertainty exists, but those sort of like, what I would think of as like the, uh, if you've ever been bowling and you put the little guardrails down to make sure you don't, you don't get too far off stray, <laughs> right? Or, uh, you know, off the middle, um, those, those bumpers are gone. Uh, those buffers are gone and, uh, for a lot of young people. So the way they navigate the uncertainty is what's different. It's not the uncertainty itself. 
And, and that was something that we felt like with COVID was just incredibly heightened for young people. Uh, as we, we've talked about this on the podcast before, but I mean, at Springtide, we collect, you know, like 10,000 surveys a year and we do hundreds of interviews with young people. And we just kept hearing this refrain from them. Uh, and it was two part. It was one was like, I don't really feel confident always in navigating what's in front of me in my life. And that's, again, as you mentioned, like not entirely uh, uncommon. It just felt like we were hearing it a lot. But it was the second part that really drove our curiosity, which was when they would say, like, I don't even know if the uncertainty that I'm experiencing is normal. So because like COVID just made all this like, you know, all this anxiety, like, am I anxious about getting a job after I graduate from college? Because that's the way all college seniors feel. Or is like my particular anxiety heightened by the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic and I don't know what kind of a job I can get and like layered on regular anxiety. So, you know what I mean? Like they just had no, no touchstone for that, nothing to come back to. So that's why we decided like this was the topic we would tackle. Hmm. You mentioned that the, those guardrails aren't there anymore. And I don't know, I'm, I'm curious about your own experience. Uh, you're you're a little bit older than Zach and I. And I can say, like, I never felt like I could go to religious leaders for for that sort of guidance. It, it just, I don't think it crossed my mind. And um, so I'm wondering if, if, if that was an experience you had and what it meant in your own life. Yeah, I definitely did. I think I was really lucky, though. Um, if there's a, one of the things that we internally are always grappling with at Springtide is the intersection of a lot of different demographics that come into play on, uh, in issues like this, including race and ethnicity, uh, class, uh, gender and sexuality are big parts of this. And like, who gets access to these things? So I grew up as a, you know, cisgendered male, white suburban kid. I had access to all of these things. Like I assumed people cared about me. And in fact, people did care about me. Um, you know, adults, like I just assumed they wanted to listen and whether they wanted to or not, they did, <laughs> and provided guides, <laughs> you know, whether I asked for it or didn't, they were there for me. And, but we recognize fully that like, that is not, that is a privilege, not an expectation. And, uh, increasingly it's a, it's a privilege that fewer and fewer people have, even though we don't find a shortage of well-intentioned and caring adults. What we find is a disconnect between those adults who care and the young people who really need that guidance. The, the systems just aren't in place to connect them very well right now. So in, are there other reasons why people aren't turning to these traditional authorities for, for this type of guidance? Well, I think there's a lot of skepticism uh, you know, from young people uh, around especially religious institutions. We know that for sure. You know, when we but, ask them, Would you say across the board, religious across institutions? The board. Yeah. Yeah. Institutions generally, religious institutions in particular, uh, you know, are no different here. Uh, when we ask young people to rank their levels of trust for any social institution, nothing really goes above a five on a 10 point scale. It, like when adults are connected to institutions, they think that the adults represent the best interests of those institutions. They don't think that the adults actually have their own best interests in mind. And so in order to overcome that initial like skepticism, it's almost like the burden of proof has shifted to use like a, a courtroom metaphor. Like, it's where we're used to be able to assume that like, hey, if I'm a, if I'm a professor at this university or, you know, if I'm a, um, if I'm a pastor at this church, that's I'm better off than if I'm just a random adult walking around, you know, that you happen to know. And in fact, now you have to overcome that. The burden of proof is on you to show as an adult that you care about that young person and not the institution that you work for because they just assume the opposite. Yeah. And one thing that was kind of striking to me in this report, and maybe I missed it, but there was there was no mention of, of sexual abuse. And it seems like when I think, oh, why wouldn't a young person be going to the church to get 
support. It, it, that's like the first thing that pops into my mind is like a possible um, explanation. But it, you know, it, it wasn't really mentioned, so maybe it's just baked in at this point. So I'm, I'm curious, curious what you think about that. Yeah, um, it's a it's a really great question. Actually, we asked a lot about this, and not in this study, but in early interviews with young Catholics, and it's. I'm not sure if it hasn't emerged yet, if it's not fully on their radar, but we knew that it wasn't something that was like rising to the level of their consciousness. Now, I think your, your point about it being baked in is potentially a really good one because, you know, like I'll give you this, uh, like a pastor the other day asked me, like, what do we do about all these young people leaving the church? I'm like, well, that's a really good question to ask in 2002. But in 2022, they're not leaving the church. Like they're not raised in it to begin with. And so I'm wondering if a lot of those kinds of like, uh, you know, scandal issues that obviously I think a lot of parents would want to protect their young children from hearing about and really digging into just because of the nature of them. I'm wondering if those live more at that, you know, that older generation level, like 35 and older, like that might've been a reason why they disengaged or why maybe even a reason why they don't bring their own kids to church. But I'm not sure that it's a part of the decision-making of a lot of like 14, 15, 16, 17 year olds. Now I, one thing I'm wondering about is that people tend to, there's this phenomena where, you know, you hate Congress, but love your congressman. <laughs> That's exactly right. Um, I'm wondering if, I, I believe that young people don't trust the church, but what's really distressing to me, church is an institution, rather. Right. Uh, what's distressing to me is that on the local level, it seems like there's also this distrust. Like the, 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 per, the local parishes and local religious leaders are linked more tightly to the institutions than maybe they have in the past, at least in terms of how young people feel about trusting them. Yeah, that, that phenomenon definitely exists with young people. So when we talk to young people who are connected with a church, um, they'll tell us like, I love my youth director. And they're like, so, yeah. so you like church? And they're like, no. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, okay. In fact, last year when we did the state of religion and young people, it was like 52%, if I remember correctly, 52% of all young people, and like 48% of young Catholics who claim a religious affiliation also say that they have little to no trust in organized religion. And the reason why I think we see this playing out even on the local level is that for a very long time, when we had high trust for those institutions, those institutions, even at the local level, built systems to leverage that trust, meaning like everything they did was to point like, look at how big we are, look at how permanent we are, look at how long we've been around and, and on and on and on. And they've been really slow to pivot out of that. As, as the rest of the world has pivoted away from trusting those institutions, I think our local congregations have not always done a good job of saying like, oh, hang on a minute, we should stop maybe leading with the fact that we are a giant institution that's global and, you know, is has a lot of bureaucracy and hierarchy. Like maybe they just have been, it's not that they're not there, they've just been slower to adjust. It's like, it's like when you walk into the church and the first two pictures you see are the Pope and the Bishop. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, who often, you know, really don't look like the people in that neighborhood. Yeah. And, and the places we've seen a lot of traction, not just in the Catholic world, but in the um, in other religious spaces, too. And in other institutional spaces where you start leading with what's local and with what's small and with what's right in front of you. Ultimately, you get a you get an avenue down the line to make the connection to something that's bigger. But when we lead with that big thing, it just like that perception fuels the lack of engagement in the first place. So kind of to play devil's advocate and not to like question your whole life's work, but do like, what do, do you, what do you say to the Catholic who's like, look, we went through 2000 years without like doing soci sociological surveys about <laughs> how to keep people in the church. What we need to do is focus on the thing that only we can do, which is like the sacraments, beautiful liturgies and 
and and that's what will make the people come. Why why do we need why do we need these um, interviews with young people? Modern tools for a modern era, right? I mean, it, it, you say I think you're right. Like they went two thousand years without doing sociological surveys, but it's not that they went two thousand years without doing sociology. The understanding of uh, a group of people that you're that you care about intensely and that you're trying to reach because you think you have a message that they need to hear and you understand the life changing power and potential of of what you've got to share with them. That's always been something that's been at the heart of organized religion, whether it's Catholic uh, or otherwise. You can call it evangelism if you want to, but other you know traditions use different terms. But the 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 truth remains that if you want to reach somebody, you need to understand them. And the in this really complex world with this massively, I mean, Gen Z is the most diverse generation that has ever existed anywhere on the face of the planet right now in the United States. And you know, so to try and use these sort of old one size fits all tools to understand this generation. Well, I think that's just doing a disservice to, to not only your efforts and a waste of resources, but you know, it's, it's undermining how much that diversity really matters to them. So I just think this is an update. This is a, like in a hundred years, we'll be using different tools. We're using different tools now than we used 500 years ago. Uh, that, all that being said, I think that those core things that you do really well, like all of this is a way to get back to doing those things more often and more like uh, presently in front of people, because that's what really matters. This is not like, you know, how can we build a, do we need smoke machines or not need smoke machines? Like this is, you know what I'm saying? Like (laughs) this is about understanding so that you can do more of that really important work. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I want to talk a little bit about, actually, I want to talk a lot about this because uh, you have this key to the report into understanding young people is this idea of faith being unbundled uh, yeah. with with young people today. Uh, I imagine that is a new term for a lot of our listeners. Could you explain what that is? Sure. It was a, it was a new term for us as we still, like, sort of looked around for how to characterize what was going on. Um, faith unbundled is is our best attempt to sort of categorize and explain in the absence of all these institutional connections and guides, what young people were doing to, to cobble together a, a way of making sense of the world. We take young people very seriously. We listen to them. We're also skeptical researchers. We are not like, you know, it's not like from the mouth of babes to our ears and then into print, you know, like, um, and even though we hold up this model of navigating of, of uh, faith unbundled as an accurate reflection of what we think is go of what is happening in the world for young people, we make no claims that it's a good one. You know, a lot of what Faith Unbundled is, is, you know, this this notion of wholeness and curiosity and exploration. Like these are realities, but they're often being led by peers. And as much as I, as much as we love and care for and respect young people, I'm not so sure that a 16-year-old leading another 16-year-old on an exploration of the intersections of Catholicism and Buddhism is a great idea. Yeah. Can you describe <laughs> what this might look like in practice for, for one person? They, what, what are they dabbling in? Yeah. So we, um, as like, just to sort of put some of these stories together and like, I think what emerges is a picture of like a young person who might've grown up Catholic, but would meditate frequently because they find some comfort in that practice. Uh, they might've learned it from a friend or seen it on social media. It's probably not a very well formulated practice of meditation, but like on an as needed basis. They're connecting with each other to find out sort of like, especially around traditions and rites and rituals that they know their friends are experiencing from different traditions, uh, like Diwali or Ramadan right now. Like maybe they're talking to their Muslim friends about Ramadan online or in person. Um, so maybe they'll start like fasting for a little bit to see what that's like for them. And it's, it's in, I think there's something really authentic about that. I'm like, I, it's not that, it's not that I want to, they want to adopt those practices piecemeal it, but it's more like they want to understand them through the lens of somebody else's lived reality. And, and then like, maybe there's something in that for them too. 
the danger for me is that like these are often like intact religious systems that go back thousands of years. And I think it's better if young people understand the totality of them. Right. Um, it's not like we good, don't have a, a tradition of fasting or contemplation and meditation exactly. within Christianity. And I think that's what they're often missing is like that whole sense of it. And uh, so like it, it's a, and I really would love for them to see the beauty of those things because I think there's actually maybe even more connections. I'm like, oh, this is a thing that happens across lots of traditions. You have an analogy in the report that I want to just tease out, um, comparing it to what uh, streaming services have done to music. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. So <laughs> it's this this notion that like we can, you know, where we instead of listening to whole albums anymore or like buying into an artist, like it's sort of this like one thing leads to the next, that leads to the next, that leads to the next. That it's sort of this ongoing generative um, thing, which is both great and lovely and, su- and serves the consumer, so to speak. But there's something about religion that's not intended to be consumerist. You know, it's it's intended to be transformative and and not require sometimes like digging in beyond that sort of surface level or what's hot right now or what's, you know, being recommended by a friend only. Well, and we should say it's not a good way to consume music either. I, I brought this up partly to, <laughs> yeah, to kick right. Ashley off her high horse a little bit because this is how Ashley consumes music. And so I wanted to I just know point every out. every Taylor no Swift album. There is. Yeah. <laughs> just look, look, you, you never get the deep cuts of all you do is your Spotify recommended stuff. I'm sorry. Just, just want to point that out. That's right. Uh, even when it comes from other friends, right? I mean, because it ends up like in this mm-hmm. echo chamber where like you end up hearing all of the best three songs that even your friends recommend. You might get to know, and I think this is what attracts young people to this doing religion this way too, is like, you get to know your friends better, but you don't get to know music better. And and I think that's part of like, I'm not sure they're getting to know Catholicism better, but they're getting to know Ashley better. Yeah, so you, you have these four words to describe faith unbundled, curiosity, wholeness, connection, flexibility. Um, so it sounds like what you might think is missing is, is depth and, and is that right? And is that yeah. something you hear young people, you know, wanting but not knowing how to access? No, they're young people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, you know, it's one of those things like we, again, we, we listen, we take, as I mentioned, we take young people very seriously, but we also understand they're young people. Like they're, we study 13 to 25 year olds and, you know, for uh, your 15 year old knows a lot about who they are and is, knows a lot about how to figure out who they are. But there's a reason parents exist, like, <laughs> and teachers and other coaches and guides and religious leaders, like they need guidance. So do we find young people clamoring for more depth? Uh, no, I don't think we had one young person tell us like, boy, I wish I'd been catechized better. Um, <laughs> you know, like, it's just not, that is not, but does that mean that they need more depth? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, that is not an indication that they have all the depth they need, or that they have been catechized well enough or any of those things. Like that's, that's where adult guides and have never played a more important role that they play right now. Yeah. You, you mentioned parents there and, and you said before, you know, this is maybe the first generation that is really, it. their parents are the w- ones who were kind of unchurched or, or not regularly practicing. Um, so, I mean, to me, that seems like if you're going to point your finger at one thing, it's it's that because if anyone asked me why I, why I was still Catholic, I would point to my to my mom. So if you don't if you don't have that, I don't know, you're fighting an uphill battle. Yeah, but you don't are. you think that like yeah. most I don't know most most parents right now want to wonder why their kids are the ones that stay Catholic wonder why yeah. their kids aren't anymore. Um, so I'm I'm actually wondering how you know parents fit into this trusted adult thing at all. Are they like? typically mentioned sometimes not always 
they are in, in every study that's ever been done about religion and young people, faith development, spirituality, parents are and remain today the single most important and influential source of religious development for their kids. Um, you know, that that fluctuates over time, but they're still at the top always. I mean, I can't think of a single, you know, it's possible, I guess, maybe I don't, maybe I don't know everything in this area, but it's always parents. And what we find, even with parents who are not connected to a religious tradition right now, we don't find much evidence, aside from the ones who, the, the two or 3% of the population that's actively designated themselves as atheist. We don't find much like antagonism towards belief uh, among parents. Like they, they generally would want their kids to know more about religion, to explore it, to, uh, and, and, and typically be supportive of some sort of a religious in- engagement. Yeah. All right. So with those parents in mind and, and you know, religion teachers and catechists, uh, maybe we can we can move podcasters. towards yeah. <laughs> podcasters, move, move towards like solutions. What you found, what what you have found that young people are looking for and, and what, you know, what they see as helpful from religious institutions or individuals. Well, oddly, I think and the only answer that we've ever gotten like 100 percent across the board was that they said listening to Jesuitical was the, like the primary <laughs> source of solutions. I knew it. <laughs> and you can and you can support us on Patreon if you'd like. No. <laughs> Perfect. Well done, Josh. Thank you. Um, and we'll work out the kickback on that later. Yeah. The, uh, no, it's <laughs> I think it's really important to understand that uh, this has always been true. It's, but it's maybe more so like important to keep in mind now, which is that this is an unfolding process for young people. So it, often when I give talks, I'll sum it up at the end by saying like, look, if there's one thing you can do, it's to stay in the conversation with young people for as long as they'll have you. This is not a sense of like, we're going to get you confirmed and then we can like, you know, wash our hands of this. Like, you, you know, you're good to go for the rest of your life. You know, we're going we're to get you bar mitzvahed and then you're a committed Jew for the rest of your life. Like we don't see that evidence like anywhere uh, in the, in the tradition. In fact, I think there's a real danger actually in thinking that because sometimes it can it can let us off the hook a little bit of thinking that we don't still need to show up for 15 year olds and 18 year olds and 20 year olds and on and on. And the reality is that we do. And I think that that that's a very simple thing to say. Uh, it's a it's a much more difficult thing to execute because embedded in what I just said is all kinds of ramifications for how we do not only church positions, but also church budgets. So if you think that what you're trying to do is establish a relationship with a, you know, a 10, 11, 12, 13 year old, that's going to last for the next decade. Well, that's, that means it's incumbent upon you to invest in those leaders who are going to be there as opposed to those programs who can serve them that week. And that's a really big shift. That's the key. Long committed relationships uh, of adults who are willing to pursue young people, listen intently and, you know, be with them over the, over the long haul. You mentioned the word pursue there, and I think that's interesting because uh, you talk about this in the report that the, the old model was open the doors and the people, you know, yeah. as long as you are welcoming, people will find their way to you. And to accompany someone, you've almost got to go out to them and, and, and go after them, right? Like um, people always, I mean, the Emmaus model is the way, you know, Jesus went with them on the journey. He didn't wait for the, <laughs> them to come find him. Sure. Yeah. That's a really great, that's a really great example. I think that it's a, one of, you know, it's like when young people are doing the things they care about and they look to their left and they look to their right, are you there with, they see you there doing the things that they also care about um, either doing them because you also care about them or, or it's just so like, I'm so irrationally interested in the things that you're interested in and you as a young person that I'm just here to support you in whatever that exploration looks like. I think we've been really reluctant to do that as religious leaders because for so long we thought that like if we show up in a space 
it, it will bring the full weight of the institution with us. And they'll think like, oh, the institution signs off on everything that's at this Black Lives Matter march or this environmental justice march or something. And so like we're, we're sort of hesitant to use our position that way. Young people don't see that at all. Like they're totally comfortable living in those nuances. Um, that doesn't mean they always like them, but they get that like you are, you know, you, you do not represent the totality of the institution um, if you can make that commitment to representing and understanding them. And so I think there's some real freedom there to say like, oh, I'm just going to show up here because it's the thing you do. And I'd like to understand you better. So thinking about, okay, so you're you're uh, representing the Catholic Church and you go to a protest rally. Do you think young people want to see the person in the clerics or the habit so they, they know that, you know, this is an institutional person and that's important to them? Or, or would that be a turnoff and they're going to be less likely to engage with, with someone who has the institutional trappings? What's your sense? My sense is that you have to show up authentically in those spaces. So if part of what's intrinsic about you as a cleric is showing up to do those things, uh, you know, it's being on Twitter, then be on Twitter as a cleric. If it's, uh, you know, if, if you play video games authentically as a, as a pastor, then play video games as a pastor. Use is, is your handle on, on Discord or whatever. Like, it's a, but if it's not, then don't. Young people understand that and, and they see through any of the, like, you know, if they think you're at their sporting event to try and convert people, not because you're interested in supporting them in their sporting event, they're like, that's there, it's a done. Like that conversation's over. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned getting on Discord and TikTok and Twitter because I feel like one of the things that, uh, you know, I hear this from parents, I, even I experience this myself. I'm so addicted to my phone and that's such like an isolating experience, mm-hmm. like the things that we, where we find a lot of meaning and enter, meaning and entertainment and socializing, um, are these like things that just like are causing a ton of anxiety and isolation. Yes. How do trusted adults, you know, try to navigate that space? Because I don't know that the skepticism towards institutions is translated to skepticism towards you know, big tech and algorithms and things like that, that's constructing a lot of this reality that's driving so much despair. The tools themselves are not bad, right? There's, in fact, if we hear from a, a lot of young people that, uh, that that there's a lot of really serious religious uh, spiritual exploration that goes on on those spaces. I mean, they'll be the first ones to tell you that like not everything we're doing there is serious, but some of the stuff we're doing there is serious. Yeah. And uh, in fact, young one person, a young person told me, uh, they said, when adults completely dismiss our, online lives as silly or trivial, they disqualify themselves from the conversation. And I think that's a really good point that you have to understand that those spaces are just as nuanced and complex as in real life spaces, IRL spaces, um, and not be completely dismissive of them. At the same time, I think a lot of what we're living through right now is a relatively new way of communicating that where good social norms haven't built up around them yet. I mean, we don't have good regulations in place. The, the, our teenagers are no match for the amount of social psychology and psychology that have gone into designing those algorithms, parents need to step in and other adults need to step in and help model and show like, what are some really life giving, affirming, productive ways of engaging with one another in these spaces. Now, speaking of being connected to a larger community and sense of purpose, um, 
we're just kind of, we're, we're beginning to come out of a time where we were all pretty isolated the past couple yeah. of years. Um, and this report touches on that, you know, 13% of young people affiliated with the faith community um, mentioned that a faith leader reached out to them personally during the first year of the pandemic. And that, that number was even lower for Catholics, which is 6%. Yeah. Uh, do you think that has done, has that done irreparable damage for the church and its outreach and relationships with young people? No, I think it was a real missed opportunity. You, look, we heard of whole dioceses laying off their youth ministry staff because they're like, well, they can't come to church anymore on Sunday mornings and that's where youth ministry happens. So there's nothing <laughs> for them to do. And so we're going to furlough them or lay them off. And it was like, whoa, what? <laughs> you yeah. know, like, it, and I think what's reflected there is not a lack of concern about young people, even though I get like it's painful in that way. Like it hits you in your gut. It's like, oh, how could you do that? But but it's reflective instead of the models and the underlying assumptions we have about how youth ministry is done, which is on site, program based and education driven. So in other words, not relational, not outreach. Right. And not one on one. We're going to do apologetics in the in the youth room. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so. You know, I think it was a real missed opportunity to flip that narrative where imagine if we had taken that as a, as a chance to say like, oh, cool. Well, we already had these things on the on the budget. Uh, so like, let's keep these people employed and let's put them to work, you know, making this pivot that was probably forcing us, you know, for going to be forced upon us in the next three to five years anyway. Let's go ahead and rip the bandaid off and do it. That didn't happen. Um, you know what? You know what I think did happen for some people is people's sort of first instinct after moving past the like physical space model is to like try to make more content, <laughs> which I also don't feel like is the right thing necessarily. It's like, oh, well, they can't come here. So let's make a let's make a, a podcast or a video show or something for them. And I, I also feel like that's not quite the answer. Uh, yeah. yeah. America's already doing that. You don't need yeah, to get our work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No reason. Like, uh, mass publication platforms. Are we actually saw about a third of young people's faith get stronger over the pandemic. Uh, one third said it stayed the same and a third said it declined. Uh, I would not, I mean, I actually take heart in it. I would not have been surprised if it had fallen off of a cliff. Um, so I, I think we're, I don't think that can happen in perpetuity. Right. Oh, that's where I wanted to go. So the not reaching out to young people during the pandemic was a huge lost opportunity. What, what would you say is the biggest opportunity um, people who are working with uh, uh, young people have coming out of the pandemic because it has, you know, it's at least at my parish, like it did shake up the way that they were doing things and thinking about things. So I think, sure. I think there is an openness to do something different, at least in some quarters. I agree. It's, I, and I think that there's a, um, there's a real chance to pivot into listening hard and in a sustained way to young people. And, and it doesn't mean giving them what they want. Uh, it's, you know, the purpose of the listening is not to find out like, all right, tell me what four things would bring you back to worship and then doing those four things and expecting them to show up. I mean, the purpose of listening is to listen. And the act of an adult listening to a young person in a sustained way, following up on what they've heard about expressing genuine curiosity. It sounds very simple. It is radically transformative for young people who think that adults connected to institutions don't care about me. Every time they interact with me is just to drive me back to the institution Right. And the only thing is what I, is not who I am. The only thing that matters is not who I am, but what I can become. So they want me to become Catholic or become confirmed or those kinds of, like once that is done, then the interest in me is over. You can disrupt all of that by and rebuild trust by simply sitting down and listening to young people, taking notes, following up, you know, seeing where their lives are at, seeing if there's any way you can be of service or of use to them. 
Awesome. The study, again, is The State of Religion in Young People 2021. Josh, we do have one more question for you. Uh, we ask all our guests this. Uh, sure. And I believe you answered this once before. Yeah. Uh, if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional oh, or so real, easy. This is so easy. Who would it be and why is it's, it Ted Lasso? It's Ted Lasso. Yeah. Yes! Yeah, I think that why, uh, the, only, the only real question there is like, why is Ted Lasso the only right answer? Um, yeah, right over my shoulder is a poster. I was going to say, says, yeah, you've got the poster. I just can't yeah. see this, but I, that's why, what cued me up that Ted Lasso is maybe coming. Go ahead. Tell us why Ted Lasso. Well, I just, I love that. It's not even, the, the one that's behind me is Ted Lasso saying, be curious, not judgmental. And it's a, uh, it's not even his quote. Like it's a, if I remember correctly, I think it might have been an Einstein quote uh, or something. Like this. Uh, it's apocryphal at this point. Yeah. That's right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But it's this notion of like, it, and I used to say this to my students when I was teaching sociology, but I feel like the same advice applies to people who work with young folks in a ministry capacity. Like if you are not intensely and again, like almost irrationally curious about their lives, you might need to find a different line of work. It, that's the thing that is needed is is to be like all in on finding out more about who they are. It doesn't mean that you're signing off on it. It doesn't mean you could, God knows, it doesn't mean you condone everything they do. <laughs> like that would be folly. Um, but young people just feel like they're uh, like adults just aren't interested in them. And we've got to do, we've got to do more. To, and I think Ted Lasso does a great job of sort of like, uh, you, you know, disrupting that narrative of, of players and coaches like, He's not interested in them as athletes. He's interested in them as people. So canonize Ted Lasso, become more interested in people for who they are, not what they can do. I love that. Very excited <laughs> about that. Can't wait for season three. Uh, one more time, the study State of Religion and Young People 2021 from Springtide Research Institute. Josh, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's always a pleasure. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Kira Hanlon. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loeshirt Studio at American Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Sebastian Gomes. We'll see you next week. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.